Welcome to Mysterious Universe Season 9, Episode 23. Coming up on the show, we have encounters with the creature from the swamp, materialising giants, and the unforeseen consequences of the technological singularity. I'm Aaron Wright. Joining me is Elliot Birch. All set for an out there show today. How are you, Elliot? I'm absolutely fantastic, Aaron. I see you've been working pretty hard. I'm glad that we changed you to the desk this week. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we've got five new authors on the blog, so I've been handling that, trying to get them set up. Mm. So that's fantastic. We've got one coming from Christy Gordon later in the show. But right now, I think we should just get into the news because there's heaps of cool stuff coming up. Yeah, let's get straight into it. There's plenty of stuff coming up on today's show. Let's start out with this new article from ancientorigins.net. Turns out archaeologists have uncovered thousands of Stone Age underground tunnels stretching across Europe from Scotland to Turkey, perplexing researchers as to their original purpose. German archaeologist Dr. Heinrich Kirsch, in his book Secrets of the Underground, Door to an Ancient World, reveals that the tunnels were dug under literally hundreds of Neolithic settlements all over Europe, and the fact that so many tunnels have survived 12,000 years indicates that the original network must have been huge. In Bavaria, in Germany alone, they have found some 700 metres of these underground tunnel networks. In Austria, they have found 350 metres. He said across Europe, there were thousands of them from the north in Scotland down to the Mediterranean. The tunnels are quite small, measuring only 70 centimetres in width, which is just enough for a person to crawl through. In some places, there are small rooms, storage chambers and even seating areas. Now, the discovery of the vast network of tunnels indicates that Stone Age humans were not just spending their days hunting and gathering. However, the real purpose of the tunnels is still a matter of speculation. Some experts believe that they're a way of protecting man from predators, while others believe that they're a way for people to travel safely, sheltered from harsh weather conditions or even wars and violence. At this stage, scientists are only able to guess. What do you think about this, Elliot? You had a few theories come up. Yes, I have some wild theories. Oh, well, it's mysterious universe. <laughs> Bring up the wild theories. Well, my first one is quite mundane, really. I think. Oh, it, no, I don't want to hear that. No, I think it's a good one, though. I think it could possibly be like a larder. So they go. A larder? Yeah, they didn't have freezers and stuff back then, so they would put food in a nice, cool area. And they did do this in uh, North America. The Native American Indians would create these. Larders, basically, above ground, though, mm-hmm. or semi-in the ground as well, and they'll put all their food in there to store over the winter and stuff. But I think yeah, it'd be quite good at storing food for a little bit longer than usual out in the open. But it was freezing outside, right? If there was all across Europe, surely they would have been, oh, it does make sense. Yeah, that's a good point. You don't want your food completely freezing as well. Well, also in the summer, it's probably better to have it under the ground yeah. rather than above. Like, your, your meat will stay quite fresh, you know, for a little bit longer yeah. than it would if it was above ground. It was just obviously rot. But my other crazy theory is that, you know, Graham Hancock, who you interviewed a few weeks ago. Of course, yes. Well, in his book, Supernatural, he talks about shamans and their hallucinogenic experiences that they would have while underground. So I'm thinking, what if there was a Neolithic Stone Age religion and these little caves and networks that are all across Europe were part of that religion and they would sort of go down into those caves and use that as for their hallucinogenic experiences. You mean like a psychomantium sort of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. I was thinking maybe these are personal ones for, say, like specific families or something. Yeah, that's a possibility. I mean, the fact that some of them are so long, I mean, 700 metres is pretty long, especially for a Neolithic civilization. They wouldn't have had very advanced tools. So that is a possibility, but I tend to believe that maybe they were for protection or it might be a way to avoid other cultures or other groups at the time because, I mean, it was a kill or be killed society surely at that time. Certainly very interesting, and we'll link to the pictures of these tunnels in the show notes at mysteriousuniverse.org. Also in the news, a UFO is suspected of causing damage to a Chinese plane. An Air China jet was forced to make an emergency landing after experiencing a large bang. 
Upon landing, the nose cone was found dented, and it's suspected that the plane collided with something. But just what caused that damage is still under debate. Now, this happened on the 4th of June, and according to China Daily, Air China reported the possible collision at 10.11am. The pilot contacted the airport and then returned for an emergency landing. Now, China Daily reports that the damage was due to a collision with a bird. However, the Aviation Herald says a bird strike was ruled out due to a lack of blood, feathers, or any other bird remains. A couple of pilots on the Aviation Herald website have commented that they have experienced similar situations. In those cases, the damage was due to a damaged radar in the cone causing the nose to collapse. However, according to The Sun, which we know is a reliable news source, mm, experts quite. concur that the damage was not due to a bird. They say that the plane's elevation was too high for birds and suspect another possibility could be a drone. And then, of course, the internet says that it was a UFO. So there you have you it. This? It's in writing. It must be a UFO. You know, it's interesting because there have been reports recently from Britain suggesting that there were near collisions occurring with flat silver discs reported over England. Yeah. It's fresh in people's minds. It's mm. raised in this article here at openminds.tv, which we'll link to. But I don't know. I mean, we did have that report, was a couple of months ago, where yeah. there was an alleged drone or remote-controlled aircraft just missed hitting a Boeing 737 or something. Yeah, near Glasgow or something like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I actually think that they've mentioned it in this article. They say that there was some sort of damage in the cone where the radar is, and maybe that imperfection somehow caused the nose cone to collapse under the different pressure of being very high up in the atmosphere. Well, uh, they do say that, you know, it, it could be a bird that they hit, but they're probably too too high up at cruising altitude for that to occur. Yeah, well, they say that. I mean, the aviation experts say that that's the case. But on top of that, you've got to remember, this is an aircraft traveling at, what, 800, 900 kilometers an hour, whatever exactly. the cruising speed is. You're going pretty fast. Who knows what pressures could be up there? But I mean, they're pretty lucky that it wasn't, if it is a drone or some type of other craft, that it didn't smash through the windshield. Yeah. I mean, that could have resulted in the entire plane going down. But of course, this is another image we're linked to, but you can actually see that the nose cone has got significant damage. But another theory you and I were talking about today was the possibility that there's just an imperfection in the steel or the metal of the aircraft. Yes. And after they go up and down and pressurize and depressurize so often, planes get old and these mistakes happen. Yeah, well, Nick Pope says something different. He says, cases like this show that whatever people believe about UFOs, there are still serious air safety issues here. MOD and CAA files contain dozens of reports of near misses between UFOs and commercial aircraft. It's only a matter of time before there's a catastrophe. So, obviously, the sun goes to Nick Pope for their information, as always. That's a theme. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it is a thing. I can't help but feel that that's kind of a sensationalized view to take, which, of course, the sun is. The sun is very yeah. sensationalized in its media reporting. And yes, I mean, there are many reports of people coming across unidentified flying objects and almost encountering. But you would think that if unidentified flying objects are intelligently controlled, you would think that they would be able to avoid conventional aircraft. Yeah, I think the problem with this story is that while I'd love it to be a UFO that's hitting the nose cone of this aircraft... <laughs> I would love that to happen. Well, I just, I'd love aliens to be in our atmosphere doing that. Um, obviously, it would be a tragedy if the, the thing blew up or whatever. Oh, of but course. That's the thing. It didn't blow up. So, whatever it was, I mean, if it's a UFO, you would think, okay, if it collided with an aircraft, it's going to do more damage than a tiny little dent. The other thing is that. There's just too many other explanations that yeah. are more down to earth, so to speak. Yeah, well, forgive the pun, but no, yeah. you're absolutely right. So I think, yeah, this is a case of a misleading title in a Sun article being picked up, and it's kind of like, 
what, what do you what do we do about this? Speaking of misleading articles from the Sun, I don't want to get into sun bashing because that's not the case. Don't yes, get we me do. wrong. Let's do it. I, I love sensationalized media just as much as anyone else. <laughs> but speaking of those near misses, last week the Sun published an article regarding the Scientology headquarters in Britain in West Sussex, and apparently there were sightings of UFOs over that site. Well, that's not exactly the case. Uh, pilots reported seeing two flat silver discs during their approach into Gatwick Airport. Some of them reported the disc flying within a hundred feet of their aircraft. Now, air traffic controllers say that they did catch six UFOs on radar, and soon after the radar signals appeared, they suddenly vanished. So as soon as the aircraft came within range of the UFO, it just disappeared. So you have a sighting which is being backed up by radar evidence. Yes. But then again, as I said before, if it's intelligently controlled, well, then they're going to avoid hitting aircraft. They don't want to bring aircraft down, especially if they're acting subversively. They don't want to bring attention to themselves. Yeah. The sun made it out that this happened within the vicinity of the Scientology complex, yeah, but it was over four miles away. Yeah, it's just coincidence. It's completely irrelevant. The UK Airprox board interviewed the pilot, and the pilot said it was some sort of toy. So I think that I would trust the pilot in this case, but... However, Nick Pope says none of these theories hold water. The object sighted remains untraced. So Nick Pope, completely dogmatic in his views. It has to be an alien spacecraft. Well, I don't know if he's exactly going to... I see where you're going, but I don't think he's saying that. But I think you're right. He is trying to say, well, no, it's not toys. It has Mm. to be a UFO. I think it's ridiculous because we're, we're told within the UFO believing community that there is UFOs out there that, you know, we're meant to respect the opinions of pilots. Mm. Absolutely, and, yeah, yes. So, so what is it? Do we respect the p- opinions of pilots or do we respect the opinions of some pilots who believe in UFOs? Well, the other issue that you have there is that you have pilots that don't want to lose their careers, obviously, and there's yeah. the aspect of ridicule. And if you have someone who's flying and they run across an unidentified flying object, they're inclined, even today, to not report it. That's Because correct, they're yeah. going to be ridiculed. Yeah. I think that's one problem. And so that's why people like Nick Pope, and I'm not defending him, but do turn around and say, well, even though they're saying it's a toy, they might be actually covering this up or trying to play it down so that they miss out on the ridicule or potential damage to their career. Although, speaking of ridicule, <laughs> going back to China, this popped up this week. We found this over at Phantoms and Monsters. A man from Binzhou in Shandong province claims that he found an alien on the banks of the Yellow River and stored it in his freezer. The discoverer of the extraterrestrial, a man named Lee, said he saw a number of UFOs flying over the Yellow River when one crashed to the ground. The alien conveniently hit an electric rabbit trap he had set up previously, incapacitating it, allowing Lee to transport it to his freezer. How convenient. Have you seen these images? <laughs> it's the most, It really is ridiculous. It's, it does look like an alien, like it's got yeah. that classic sort of fall. However, the fact is... Um, it looks like it's been beaten with the ugly stick. Yeah, it turns out that it's made of rubber. Now, the police <laughs> intervened, and of course it is fake. It's made out of rubber. I mean, obviously, Tullalay Latex, our parent company, has been producing rubber aliens. But also, I wonder if this is maybe a sex doll, and I don't want to be rude I know, at all, yeah. But for some reason, he has put an uh, overemphasized amount of female anatomy... <laughs> yes, he really has. ...in the waist region on this yeah. thing. And I have no understanding as to why he would do that. It gets worse, though, Aaron, because shortly after he proudly posted photographs of his alien on the internet, he was arrested by the police for five days for fabrication that disturbed the public order. Isn't that incredible? <laughs> He was forced to admit that he indeed sought to use his model held together with chicken wire and glue to mislead his fellow Chinese about the existence of extraterrestrial creatures. This is a weird thing. After being interrogated by the police, he said, I confessed I was a fan of UFOs and that the alien was fake. I just wanted other people to believe that aliens existed. Um, 
Hang on. <laughs> Isn't that ridiculous reasoning? Because you're trying to prove that aliens exist by making a fake one? Yeah, and it's a really, really bad fake. <laughs> it's so obviously fake. This guy is awful at this. I don't know. Like, he used rubber, but it looks disgusting. I, to- I told you, it does. It's like he's melted a sex doll. It, it really does look like that. Like, in all seriousness, it looks like he melted a sex doll. Yep. It's disgusting. We will link to that in the show notes at mysteriousuniverse.org. Now, also in the news, if you can recall, back in February, that huge meteorite came down over the Ural Mountains and Mm. caused all that incredible damage to the homes in the region. Well, it turns out that it was the largest explosion ever recorded by the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty Organization. Now, this organization was set up to look for rogue nations testing nuclear weapons, and they have these infrasound monitoring stations set up all around the world. Now, the previous largest meteorite explosion happened on the 8th of October in 2009. It happened over Indonesia, was recorded by 17 stations. This one was recorded by 20 infrasound monitoring stations. It was some 460 kilotons of TNT equivalent, almost 10 times the energy of the 2009 Indonesian event. Now, it was the most energetic confirmed airburst since the explosion in 1908 of the Tunguska meteorite over Siberia. So the Tunguska explosion was three to five megatons of TNT equivalent. So that's absolutely ginormous in comparison to the one that was over Russia this year. Well, that's going from kilotons to megatons. That's like a thousandfold increase of power. Absolutely ginormous. But one of the amazing things is that the team reports that infrasound signals of the explosion circled twice around the entire globe and were recorded until almost three days after the event. Isn't that incredible? It's just amazing. See, this is what makes me believe that those sky sounds that we hear, and there's been reports of sky sounds just this week, in fact, I wonder if it could be linked to some type of infrasound as well, because Mm. we hear about meteorites. It says that this sort of event happens every 75 years. Something over the range of 500 kilotons happens every 75 years. But meteorites come down across the planet every single day, if not hundreds of them every single day. There's a lot that come down. I wonder if that somehow could contribute to causing problems which result result in getting these hums or in these sounds which are showing up. Of course, you know, that's just a theory. No one knows exactly why that's occurring. So this system that they use to actually get this data is something that's used to detect nuclear blasts throughout the world. So it's actually a really sensitive system Mm. and it's just got this peripheral use now, which I think is really cool. They've actually measured this explosion using this system. Yeah, it's pretty impressive, isn't it, that you could use the technology which was built up for something such as monitoring nuclear explosions. You can actually apply it to having meteorites coming down. It's very impressive stuff. So moving from meteors to alien contact, we move to io9 for an article from George Dvorsky called New Project to Message Aliens is Both Useless and potentially reckless. A group of scientists and entrepreneurs have created the world's first continuous message beacon to communicate with extraterrestrial civilizations. And for a fee, people can use it to transmit their own messages into space. But not everyone thinks this project is a good idea. The idea of messaging ETs has been around for a while now and typically goes by the name METI, Messaging to Extraterrestrial Intelligence, or Active SETI. The basic idea is that instead of just listening passively for an alien radio signal, we should deliberately try to send messages into space in hopes of attracting the attention of alien civilizations. To that end, Dr. Jacob Hack Misra and a group of entrepreneurs recently took over the Jamesburg Earth Station radio dish in Carmel, California. They'll use the facility to send a continuous hailing message into outer space. It'll all get started later this month. This is going to be called the Lone Signal. It's going to be targeting a local habitable solar system. And they say that their goal is to discover sentient beings outside of our solar system. But an important part of the project is to get people to look beyond themselves and their differences by thinking about what they would say to a different civilization. Lone Signal will allow people to do that. 
So I think that's really cool because obviously if we meet another civilization, we don't want to be afraid of them. Maybe if we contact them first, they will be friendly to us and then come and see us and yeah. we'll be friends. Maybe. I don't see it happening that way. Remember, come on. Oh, well, I agree with George <laughs> Dvorsky here. I think it is reckless and dangerous. And not only that, I mean, this has been happening ever since radio signals were turned on. Since, let's say, television, for example. How long has television been around? It's been around for at least 60 years. Mm. Those signals have been beaming out from the planet for 60 years. So anyone within the range of that would have picked it up by now. So if they were that advanced... They would have known that we're here. Maybe that's why we had a sudden increase in UFO sightings and UFO abduction accounts in the 50s as well. Maybe that's when everything started. Maybe we were setting ourselves off like a beacon in deep space. Yeah. And of course, I mean, Stephen Hawking's even said, we don't want to be doing this. If we send off these messages into space, we might tick off the wrong people. You know what? I don't blame them because I hate getting spam phone calls. And this is exactly what it is. It's not us sending out really important messages. It's us sending out bloody tweets. This is what this is. Look at this. Lone Signal will be sending two signals. Now, one is a continuous wave signal, a hailing message that sends a binary broadcast to provide basic information about Earth and the solar system. So kind of like an educational stream coming in. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's cool. But if I get someone's tweet or someone Instagramming <laughs> their organic cow-fed rice for dinner, I don't want to see that. If I was an extraterrestrial civilization, I'd be like, these people need to be wiped out. Yeah, they they'll, just, they'll be sick of filters on their on their photos. I know. More than we are. It's crazy. <laughs> exactly. But although you, you do say that, but I, I actually think this is kind of cool. I, I like the idea of humanity coming together and sending out peaceful messages, hopefully peaceful messages, mm, mm. to another civilization. I think that's it's meant to be about goodwill, right? Yeah, I think I that's s- a good thing. But they also say that after the first free message, customers can purchase paid credit packages that will allow them to transmit and share longer messages, including images. See? <laughs> the price structure basically is 99 cents, buys you four credits, and it exponentially goes up. I so, could see this <laughs> going so wrong. <laughs> It won't allow us to properly represent humanity. I mean, no one, I don't think, very few people are going to be tweeting out into space some of the greatest works of Aristotle and Greek philosophers and ethical theories. It's going to be, oh my God, there's so much sand at the beach. Yeah, that kind of stuff. (laughs) There'll be just tons of messages about Justin Bieber, all that sort of nonsense. I mean, I just went through it this afternoon. I just had a look for dumb tweets. I actually found this one. R.I.P. Neil Armstrong to think he was alive and well playing reading with his band this morning. Someone's like, (laughs) Neil Armstrong is not the singer for Green Day. Billy Joel Armstrong is the singer. like, oh, he's the bass player then. Whatever. That's <laughs> what's going to be going into space, Elliot. Yeah, it's very depressing. We have no hope for humanity if this keeps up. I mean, joking aside, though, that's beside the point. Uh, there is another issue that was raised in this article, and that was the fact that perhaps civilizations already do know about humanity. And if we start sending stuff out into space, it could actually do the opposite. It could make them go, well, we're not really interested in dealing with humanity because yeah. they're not to our standards. They're not to our capabilities. <laughs> they're too busy tweeting about what food they ate. Yeah, exactly. That could yeah. be a possibility. I will link to this article in the show notes at mysteriousuniverse.org. In fact, all the news that we've mentioned at the start of the show. We're going to take a quick break now, but when we come back, we have encounters in the creepy woods. You're listening to Mysterious Universe. Don't go away. We're very excited to have our five new writers aboard, and one that came up this week which I really enjoyed was actually by Christy Gordon, and it's Creepy Woods, Unknown Beasts and Hauntings in the Forest. And she says, many people think of the woods as a peaceful place to enjoy Mother Nature and get away from the stresses of life. Others view the woods as a hostile environment brimming with vicious wildlife and unseen hazards in the brush. That's like me. I hate 
the outdoors. Yeah, I'm not really an outdoors guy. I mean, I actually, my property is right next to a national park. And Stay indoors. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Safer. Snakes and weird things at night, not good at all. She says, there are times, however, when even the most seasoned outdoorsman is afraid to enter the forest for fear of what he might find. And she includes five different ones here. The ones that I want to talk about, she pointed out from survivalistboards.com. It's a forum for avid outdoorsmen, and one hunter describes his experience with an unknown beast deep in the swamp. She says the outing started like any other, but though the hunter normally felt at home in the darkest, deepest areas of the swamp, something about this area seemed off. He couldn't shake the sensation of being watched, and the feeling left him with a growing sense of dread. While sitting in a tree stand, the hunter heard a massive creature venturing across the swamp and towards the nearby thicket. At first, the hunter thought a group of wild hogs was responsible for the racket, but he soon realised that a single creature was to blame. He says, whatever it was, I was in no hurry and stayed out of sight. I had scattered the area and I knew that the water the creature was in was waist deep to me. I could hear the splish, drip, drip, splash, as if he put one foot in front of the other real slow, like he was trying to be quiet. I would never point a gun at a noise or anything I wasn't planning to kill dead, but as the noise got louder, I was looking down the barrel. The beast eventually charged into the thicket, silencing the frogs, insects, and even the chirping birds. The hunter never did see the massive creature, but when he returned a few days later to retrieve a forgotten bag, he discovered deep claw marks on the tree that he'd been using for his stand, and his bag was gone. That sounds like a terrifying tale and another good reason to basically never leave your house. That's why I play video games. I don't have a tan. I look translucent. It's fantastic. But Elliot, you can't live your life like that. You have to go out and enjoy nature and get dirt in your face. And uh, okay, I'll stay inside. Good yeah. point. Swamps particularly so. Well, that's a good point. Yeah. Well, just even here in Australia, we have mosquitoes and anything that swamps you just get eaten by mosquitoes. Yeah. She also points out there was another report from a UK anglers forum and one fisherman describes his chilling experience in a wooded area of France. He said, during the late afternoons, I had the feeling of being watched from the woods at the far end of the lake. Each day, at the same time, the feeling would return, usually around dusk and from different areas, as if it were getting closer. Now, the angler had camped near a chateau riddled with bullets from the Second World War. When he awoke the next morning, he got the shock of his life. He says, I decided to make a brew and as I flicked on the lighter... The sparks silhouetted the face of a helmeted German soldier peering into my bivy from the darkness outside. The angler later discovered that the area around the woods had been the site of fierce fighting between American and German soldiers. The Germans fled into the woods but were ambushed by a reserve patrol and buried around the lake. Now, I like that story. That's kind of like a haunting, but it's also mixed in with the idea of there being possibly time slips or it's a traumatic location. Yeah. So it seems to be a magnet for paranormal activity. Yeah, I know you're a fan of that. There's heaps of cool stories about whole processions of troops from the Civil War in America mm. walking down streets and things like that, isn't there? Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's a really cool story. Well, I mean, I really do believe that there is the possibility that a traumatic event has occurred somewhere and it could cause that event to repeat over and over again. I mean, you've heard it from centuries-old reports where the Roman soldiers, for example, show up in the London underground, but that yeah. was the point where the old Roman roads would have been. So she moves on to highlight a member of the Philippine Marine Corps who also had a terrifying experience, this one in the jungle. One day, the man set out on patrol after his unit received reports of an enemy sighting. After three days of trekking in the bush, the unit spotted a faint figure in the distance. As they drew closer, however, they saw that the figure wasn't actually walking, but floating. Though that wasn't the worst thing about it. So the soldier goes on to say, the figure was dressed like a normal living person, but he had no face. The best I can describe is that the face was completely erased. Its skin was very pale, as if drained of blood. It seemed to have bullet holes across its chest. At one point, it stopped gliding. I looked through my rifle scope, 
and I had the fright of my life when I saw it was looking back at me with its featureless face. So this has got some really cool stories in it, and they are pretty chilling, these stories. But you've got more. You went down a bit of a rabbit hole, didn't you, as well? Yeah, well, that spurred me off to go and have a look at some of these forums. I mean, these are the most benign forums that you could think of, like Survivalist Board and these Anglers Forums, but they're just full of these crazy encounters that people have had with odd creatures hanging out in swamps and the woods and everything else. We're going to go into those in the plus section of the show, but I did want to go and have a look at some of these reports that possibly have come from Australia. And I actually found one. This is from Bigfoot Encounters. Dot com, and it says this took place in the mountains around the Springbrook National Park in southeastern Queensland. It was to the east of the Woonburra Lookout. This area is mountainous and the bush is thick, although it's not too far from towns and homes. In 1984, I was living on the Queensland Gold Coast. My best friend Wayne lived in Springbrook with his parents. In September, a friend of mine, Anna, came to visit from Melbourne. Wayne and I had often used the walking trails in the National Park. We had never seen anything unusual. Anna wanted to take a hike into some of the rougher country, so we parked at the lookout and continued into the National Park area. We stopped on the hillside overlooking the dam and stayed there for a few hours. We commented to each other that we felt like we were being watched and concluded that there must be someone else sharing our bush paradise. As it was a late afternoon, we set to walking back along the very vague animal trail that we had followed into the area. At one point, we were walking across the slope of a heavily wooded hill. We were walking slowly, picking our way along about four metres apart. We crossed a rocky dry creek bed running down the slope in amongst the trees. Wayne crossed it first, Anna crossed it second, and as she crossed, she looked to her right up the creek bed. She froze on the spot. Wayne turned around and came back, and I caught up with Anna. Looking up the creek bed, we all saw a human-sized, black, sleek, furry creature. It was squatting on the rock at the edge of the creek bed about six or seven metres away. It seemed to be playing with twigs or something. It noticed us, and I remember seeing a human ape face with glistening eyes. The facial area was black, but free of fur, as were its hands and feet also. Had it not been moving, it would have been totally camouflaged by the black shadows of the bush around it. This took place in only about 30 seconds. The creature didn't seem to be disturbed by our presence at all. Then we heard a strange gurgling sound, and something came crashing through the bush towards the creature. There was a brief pause and silence while the smaller creature looked behind it. Then a huge, long arm with hands and five fingers covered in the same black fur reached out for the creature. The smaller creature took the hand and the arm drew the smaller creature away. We could hear them moving through the leaves for a second, but as soon as the spell was broken, we bolted out of there at world record speed. Between us, we later confirmed that there was a strange kind of wet dog smell about the creatures, and that the smaller creature was almost definitely a child. The smaller creature was about 5 foot 6 inches tall, maybe a little taller. It was wiry and gangly like a chimpanzee. When it stood up, it was surprisingly very upright and erect. Nothing like an ape's posture, it was everything like a human posture. Its arms and legs were long. There was no flesh colouring anywhere to be seen, it was all black. The bigger creature was the same, but the arm we saw was very muscular. We agreed that we did see a suggestion of a breast as a bigger creature bent down. It was possibly a female. He says we've never seen more than the odd black wallaby in this area, however black animals are common in this thick bush as they only have to stand still and they can vanish into the hard shadows. We thought these creatures might have been following us or at least observing us as we picnicked in the park. Anna returned to Melbourne and did some research at the State Library. There was no internet in those days. And she found a report in the Brisbane newspaper about 30 years previous where a couple of hikers had been fishing in the Little Narang River. They had put a caught fish behind them on the bank. They heard a noise and when they turned around, they saw huge black-furred humanoid creatures making off with their catch running off into the surrounding bush. 
Wow, what a cool story. But that reminded me of, if you remember probably a few months ago, you guys were talking about the alternate, maybe it was even last year, you were talking about an alternate theory for Neanderthals. Mm. And they kind of looked like Bigfoot, but they looked weird like they and terrifying. They had these huge almond eyes and they're completely black skin, black fur, and they were ginormous. Was that the artist's impression of what they possibly could be? Because we've always yeah. had the idea that Neanderthals are these... Hulking, dumb, you know, yeah, humans. Kind of like humans, but a bit more dumb looking. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But well, not these, these things, aggressive, yeah. ape-like, killer chimp creatures, right? Yeah, these things are like super predators that would probably hunt with weapons, mm. but hugely powerful, muscular, kind of our height, but still quite muscular. That's what it kind of sounds like, you know? He's saying that they've got the black features mm. and completely black skin, rather, and they've got the black fur as well. And then this huge muscled arm comes and grabs this upright standing ape-like creature. Well, as I said, it might have looked like an ape, but when it stood up, it was standing up like a human. Yes, exactly, which Neanderthals would have done. So it kind of makes me think, well, what if when the Neanderthals were around and they realised, holy crap, we're being hunted to extinction or whatever happened to them, they decided to move down into Australia and now they're here. Yeah, that's a that's a possibility, but I mean, we've become so well populated now, though in saying that, I mean, there's, there's so of- many crossovers between that theory and Sasquatch in general. Yeah. So why not the Yowie? It just seems like a real, like, and they're always in really isolated areas. Yeah, that's a really good theory. It's kind of a concept which is put forward quite often that it's some type of Neanderthal species which has not died out but remained hidden or it's some type of other hominid species which is around. And I think that that's quite plausible because even though Australia is populated, there are vast swathes of land which are completely underpopulated or there's no one there at all. So that definitely is a possibility. Now, still on this subject, I wanted to cover the fact that there are creepy things that do go on in the woods. And leading on from Christie's article, I found this over at thesurvivalistboards.com. It's by Norman. And he says, when I was a boy, my parents used to take me and my older sister to my relative's house in Kentucky. My uncle, who taught me everything I know about the outdoors, lived in a cabin nestled in a hollow way back up in the mountains. His place was at the base of a big strip mine up the mountainside. As a boy, he and I used to go and sit on the back porch at night and use predator calls to try and call something down out of the hills. Well, one night, he and I were out there using one of his tapes. We'd been there for about two good hours and had seen nothing, so we were thinking about calling it a night. We were about to pack up everything when we realised that his squirrel feeder was empty. He then decided to go and fill it up with seed. His feeder was about 50 yards away from his cabin on the mountainside and boarded the tree line. He walked up to the hillside about 25 yards away when his wife came out to see if we were still outside. The only light out that night was the light on the porch. He was about 35 yards up the hill and he called back and said that he had forgotten his flashlight, so his wife went back inside and got it. We had forgotten to turn the tape off with the predator calls on it, so I reached down to the tape player and turned it off when I noticed my aunt was stiff as a board. I hit the off button and looked up at her and she had the spotlight shining straight up the squirrel feeder where my uncle was standing. I heard her say, it's coming to you, Jim. He turned back and goes, huh? Then a little louder this time, she goes, it's coming straight towards you, Jim. That's when I looked up and saw a massive set of eye shines about 15 feet away from where my uncle was standing, and it was closing in. Whatever it was, it was massive. The eyes were about four to five feet off the ground. Whatever that creature was, it completely had the drop on my uncle. He was turned around looking at us with his back to the woods, so we told him to freeze. We all kind of just stood there for about three minutes, which seemed like a lifetime. It was dead silence. There was no crickets, no sounds in the night. It was the most eerie and creepy three minutes of my life. It just sat there in the tree line, staring at us and us staring back at it. 
The brush at the tree line was thick, so we could not see what shape it was. Just the eyes, and where they were in relation to the ground. After those three minutes, my uncle slowly turned around to see what was about 15 feet from him. With our spotlight on it, he was able to turn back and look directly in the eyes. It took off. As for the next 15 minutes, we could hear limbs cracking and snapping all the way up the side of the mountain as this animal decided to retreat. It scared the hell out of me, my uncle, and my aunt. My uncle was shaking and I've never seen him that terrified. The other thing that scared us both is that we'd been sitting out there all night listening intently and watching the tree line like hawks. Whatever animal or creature that it was, it didn't make a single sound coming down from the side of the mountain. It never made a sound until it took off. After that night, I never slept at my aunt or uncle's place ever again. So if you ever needed proof to stay out of the forest or the bush, there it is, Elliot. Yeah, I, I, I didn't need any more proof than I already had <laughs> that there's horrible things in the, in the forest. That didn't sound like a Bigfoot, though, but it definitely sounds like some type of predator creature. But it was four to five feet off the ground. The eyes were four to five feet off the ground. Yeah. Now, that would make me think that that's not some type of big cat that's escaped. It's got to be something else. But... Yeah. Well, it could be like a giant boar or something like that. But four to five feet off the ground? They're pretty big, those things. Maybe not four to five feet, but they can be pretty ginormous. It's still pretty terrifying. We'll link to that in the show notes at mysteriousuniverse.org. Thanks to Christy for pointing us in the direction of that. Now, I'm looking forward to some of the new blood articles that are coming through. Keep an eye on mysteriousuniverse.website because there's plenty more coming up soon. Now, moving on, Elliot, we found this great encounter from yourghoststories.com. This is actually from New Zealand, and it's The Bright Man. They say this happened only a week after my older brother was run over and killed by a mover truck. I was staying with our grandparents in their rural two-story house on the outskirts of the city, waiting for the next day when the funeral was to take place. I was in the second-story lounge with my friend Ria, and we were watching the grandparents' collection of James Bond movies for the past few hours, and it was almost half past one in the morning. We were chatting away when the movie was coming to a close, and all of a sudden we heard this crazy booming from outside. We went silent instantly, as I already knew what the noise was. On the shed outside the house was a thin metal door that made the greatest bash noise with the slightest touch. Crime isn't famous around those parts, but I'm a bit overcautious after being in the army for a little over two years. I clicked off the television along with the lights and we got down on our knees in front of the couch where my view of the window was obscured. My grandparents were away giving condolences to my parents. Anyway, I moved to the corner where the switch was to the lights that shone down on the shed. I switched it on and asked Rhea if she saw anything down there. She said there was nothing and it was probably a possum. I took her word for it and got ready for bed, laying out the sleeping bags across the floor. We got ready and started chatting about the noise. Then it happened again, the same massive booming noise. This time I leant out the window and shone a field torch down there. Again, it looked as though nothing had caused the noise. We finished preparing and hopped into our sleeping bags. Almost ten minutes later, the same noise happened again. And this time, it seemed like Rhea was beginning to get a little freaked out. At this stage, I'd had enough, thinking it was some kind of prankster. I went and got my granddad's hunting shotgun and went out onto the deck. We had no rounds, but I hoped the mere sight of it would scare off whoever was down there. I searched the perimeter of the shed, but found nothing. I searched the perimeter of the house as well, and still found nothing, so I went back inside to find Rhea curled up in her sleeping bag. This time we were going to watch out the window for the noise to happen again. Another ten minutes later it happened again, and this time it was much worse. About ten metres from the utility house, something kind of materialised. It was in the shape of a man, roughly, and it was solid white. Not skin white, just white, and it gave off a light that stuck to its body. It was sprinting directly towards the utility house. It sort of shoulder-barged the door, and though it didn't break it, it did dent it quite a bit. The thing started beating its arms furiously and savagely against the door. The worst thing was the noise it made. It was screaming its head off. It sounded nothing like a human. 
not even like an animal. Like something out of a horror movie. Rhea stifled a scream beside me while I was too freaked out to even make a noise. The thing was about nine feet tall, almost reaching the height of the shed itself. It looked like it had a tremendous build. All of its screaming was beginning to eclipse the tremendous booming of the metal door being struck. And suddenly, as if it sensed us watching it, the bright man stopped screaming and turned towards us. And this is what made me finally wise up and get away from the window. It had no face, no features whatsoever, except one thing. Its eyes, like two little black marbles. I grabbed Rhea by the arm and we sprinted to the back of the house. We stayed in the bathroom that night, the only room without windows, and we kept the door firmly locked. The next morning, Rhea and I left and I called the police. Soon an investigation was underway. The door to the shed was covered in massive dents and the lock was literally ripped off. Nothing was taken from inside, but there was something strange. As my dead brother lay in his coffin, something had changed. His expression had gone from something peaceful to an intense frown. My parents thought it was some type of omen after I told them the story and they refused to change his expression or his clothes. He was buried the next day. So that's very unusual, Elliot, because it sounds like in the case there that obviously his brother had passed away and they'd obviously been keeping his body in the shed or in the outhouse before the funeral. I don't know what the culture is about that, but that seems to be the case of what's going on here. Mm. But what the hell could be trying to get in there, trying to get to that coffin? I'm not sure. It's it's really weird because you would think if he was struck by a, a large truck, his body would be kind of mangled, right? Yeah. So... Why would this creature, what supposedly this creature, why would it want to get to his body if it's a mangled body? Like, if it's supposing you would think it would go and possess it or something? Maybe. That's I don't a, know. Yeah, that's where I was kind of going as well, but I find that so difficult yeah. to believe. It could I, all be, it could be bunk. Like, this could yeah, just be well. a, a not true story, which is kind of what I'm leaning towards, be, mainly because, as I, as I just said, if you're hit by a truck, your body's kind of mashed up a little bit. And you probably wouldn't have an open casket. Well, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. But then, you know, we don't know what the the culture is behind that. But maybe, you know, there could be something etheric about this. It might not Mm. be a possession from a physical sense. Maybe there are these entities that are out there. I mean, we've had hundreds, if not thousands of reports of just weird things being out there. Definitely. Maybe this thing was attracted to maybe the smell. It's like a reverse shadow man as well. It's like white body and black eyes. It's really strange how they've they've worded this. Yeah, maybe he was, maybe this entity was tasked with I don't know, once you pass on, maybe it was supposed to guide him or something. Maybe it had just missed the point and was trying to get in there. Maybe it was grumpy. That's a possibility as well. <laughs> we'll link to that in the show notes at mysteriousuniverse.org for you to make your own mind up about that story. We're going to take a quick break here, but we've got plenty more coming up on this episode of Mysterious Universe. Don't go away. Heaps of great emails this week. One came in from Tim who said he was talking to his friend Rob about some of his favourite UFO and alien abduction stories. And at one point he mentioned missing time. And his friend Rob turned around and said, missing time? That happened to me once. And he goes on to say that he and his sister were eating cereal one day at like 10 o'clock in the morning. Rob was 12 and his sister was 9. It was summer so they didn't need to be at school and their mum had left for work. They heard an indistinct noise at their front door which was open and they turned to look. They saw a light in the sky and it got brighter and brighter until all they could see was just the light and scarily silhouettes of people, short people. There were about eight to ten of the short people and one silhouette of a taller one and they were moving towards the door. At one point, they stopped moving and just stood there. When the light faded, Rob was now in the living room, not the dining room where he had been, and he was now facing the opposite direction. 
His mum chastised him for never taking off his pyjamas, and Rob asked her why she'd come home early, thinking he himself must have fallen asleep at some point and was still confused. His mother said it was 4.30 and they checked the clock. It was 4.30. Rob falling asleep was all but confirmed. They went to the dining room and Rob's sister said, what the heck was that? Upon questioning, Rob's sister recounted the same story Rob had, except she hadn't moved from her bowl of cereal. Rob's mum took this to mean that someone had just tried to get into the house and she called the police and took them to a hotel. The police responded and investigated. They found that there was no one on the premises and there was no signs of attempted entry. What an unusual account. Thanks for sending that through, Tim. It certainly does sound like the beginnings of an alien abduction, but yeah. it's a little bit beyond that. It also sounds like, I don't know, a time slip, possibly. Mm. Those reports come up quite frequently. Well, perhaps he actually was abducted because, you know, he appeared in a different part of the house and he didn't know what had happened, but his sister had stayed in the same spot. That was really weird. But this did sort of ring a bell for me because it reminded me of the Australian story that happened back in 1993 of Kelly Carhill, mm. who was basically driving along the road in Narrawarren, which is actually where my dad lives. Right. And she was driving past this paddock, which I drove past every day to go to school. And basically she was stopped by a huge UFO. She stopped and there was another car as well. And they saw all these aliens coming towards them. But not only was there small aliens, it was like one large one as well that was like controlling them. So, yeah, it's got this same reoccurring theme that seems to happen quite a bit in terms of the greys. They seem to have this overlord guy. Yeah, that's the thing that always shows up in these reports. It's really odd. There's cases where people are abducted and they describe seeing these grey type creatures. But you're right, there's always this one taller being. And unless Tim's friend Rob is having him on, it definitely sounds like those stories that you hear of people being abducted by greys and there being this tall entity which is overseeing the process of whatever is going on. And you're right, it sounds like he was actually abducted and yet the sister wasn't. It would be interesting to see if he went and got some reverse regression hypnosis or something like that to determine what actually went on that day. Another great email we got was from Teresa. She's describing an out-of-body experience she had when she was a child. She says, it all started when I was about six years old. I had a vivid dream that I was floating in a classroom watching myself as a 12-year-old child. I remember recognising myself, although I looked a little bit different. I even remembered the powder blue sweatshirt that I was wearing and my unbrushed messy hair. As I looked around the classroom, I did not recognise the surroundings, the teacher or the students, but it did seem familiar. It was not a long dream, but for the brief moment that I was watching myself, I felt smarter. I say smarter because I struggle for a better way to phrase it. It was like I understood more, like I had a wider scope. I remember my dream throughout my childhood, but I never thought of it as more than that, a dream. Now, don't give up on me because this is where the plot thickens. When I was 12, going into 7th grade in my math class, it all came back to me in a flash. I looked around and I recognised everything from that moment. The teacher, the classroom, the faces of the other students. I remember thinking to myself, what was this for and will I feel this way again? I was disturbed by the nature of the whole situation and as you probably suspected, the experience did repeat itself. Sitting in class, I want to say two or three weeks later, I felt anxious and shaky. I'm a pretty anxious person, so the onset of anxiety doesn't seem to be out of the ordinary, but it increased a tad, and as I sat there, feeling increasingly detached from the class, I was unable to pay attention to the lesson. I don't remember how I got there. I didn't see my point of view gradually change or anything like that, but it seemed so arbitrary, and with no warning, in the blink of an eye, I was up there, in the southwest corner of the room. I saw everything that I did in that dream in the same detail. The same children, the teacher and myself in that ugly powder blue sweatshirt, my messy hair. 
for the first few moments of this experience were just like the dream, and it was like I was living it again. The faces and the names of the people in the classroom were now familiar with me, but it was as if I knew them for no reason. It was like I knew them, but I didn't. I can't describe that sensation in clearer detail, it's just too difficult to explain. I stayed there with no control over my position. I was watching the movements of the students and the teacher. The experience lasted so much longer than my short dream. I didn't feel nearly as anxious as I did before, but I did feel uneasy and cautiously curious. I could hear them, but it sounded muffled, and what they said was unintelligible. I don't remember how I got back to myself, but I do remember going to my next class and eventually brushing my hair. The rest of the day, I felt groggy and overall pretty freaked out. I've never had any out-of-body experiences since. Love the show, and I'm glad I'm a Plus member. Thanks for all your work. Thanks, Teresa. What an amazing account. And it's funny because when I first started reading your emails, I was going through this, I'm thinking, oh, you know, we don't normally cover dreams on Mysterious Universe because anything can happen in a dream. Yeah. But at the same point, I was, I guess, finding a rapport with you because I've had those situations as well where you're sitting in a certain situation, you're talking to people, and all of a sudden, like, you get this feeling of deja vu just come straight back to you. But it's not a feeling of deja vu as in I've been here before. It's more like I've seen it in a dream. Yeah. But it sounds like it's gone beyond that with her. It's like she's seen her out-of-body experience in a dream. Yeah. It's like it goes to show you that possibly we're not linear. It's like this cyclical nature or perhaps she's jumped realities. Maybe she's gone from this dimension to another one. I mean, what do you think, Elliot? Yeah, one thing that really piqued my interest was when you were talking about how it felt. And I know that experience from in dreams that I've had. I've had I used to have night terrors when I was a kid. Mm. And I'd have these dreams where I felt like I was someone else. And I had this really weird one where I it was like this giant machine that was my father. But I was someone else. I was me, but someone else. And it's really hard to convey these feelings to anyone else. Yes. Because you felt them and there's no real words in the English language to describe them. Yeah. So it's very strange. It's like hard to get across to people. Yeah. But I kind of understand what you mean. Yeah, that was coming across in the email. I mean, you're saying there that it's like, I knew them, but I didn't know them. It's like, how do you express that? I think that doesn't even begin to describe what you were going through. So certainly an incredible account. Thank you for emailing that through. Another great email we got was from Nicole from Illinois, and she said, Hi, guys, I've been having some experiences lately that I wanted to tell you about. This has been happening, especially since I've been catching up on episodes of Mysterious Universe. And one thing we often say, Elliot, is that when you start looking at the phenomena, it starts looking back at you. Mm. And she has said that she was particularly listening to an episode where we won't mention the name of a particular box, the Dibber box. (laughs) And ever since that's happened, it's triggered off some bizarre encounters for her. She says, only after a few days of listening to it, I was sitting at my computer and I saw something out of the corner of my eye. It was small, about the size of a guinea pig, and it dashed across the floor out of my line of sight. I turned my head to see what it was, but there was nothing there. I shook it off as my imagination, but that was just the beginning. Since then, I've seen glimpses of what I call shadow figures. I call them that for lack of a better descriptor. What I usually see is a shadow in my peripheral vision, dashing just out of sight. Sometimes it goes around a corner or down a hallway, and other times it just goes out of my line of sight. When I turn to look, there's nothing there. The shadows I see vary in size. I've seen something as large as a full-grown man dash down the hallway and shadows the size of a field mouse turn a corner. It's always in the edge of my vision, any time of day or night, and almost always when I'm at home. However, I did have one experience at my office at work. My door was closed and I saw a shadow shoot past me on the floor. I turned my head to look and of course again there was nothing there. When it first began it was infrequent. I wrote it off as my imagination or a trick of light. I sort of got used to seeing these shadows, and even though I'd often turn to look at the movement I saw out of the corner of my eye, they were just shadows, 
But since I've been listening to MU, I've been seeing these shadow figures more frequently. In fact, it's happening almost daily. I don't know what I'm seeing, but I'm so convinced that it's real that I continue to turn my head to look. In fact, a few weeks ago, I saw a movement dart into my kitchen. I actually got up from where I was sitting and went into the kitchen, turned on the light and fully expected to see an animal on the kitchen floor looking back at me. Of course, there was nothing there, but you can't convince me that I didn't see it. You can't convince me that it's not there. I know what I saw and I know what I'm continuing to see. What really prompted me to write to you was about this experience I had a few weeks ago. I was on a long drive home from another state and I was almost home. It was late, it was dark, and I was on a country road. See, that's just a, a bad combination there. Elliot. You went outside, that's, that's yeah, where that's you went problem. Don't go outside. <laughs> she says, the road I was on I'm familiar with. I live in the Midwest and the road is primarily fields on both sides dotted with trees here and there. It's quiet and except for the farmhouses and a couple of very small towns, it's usually empty. About 20 minutes from home, I noticed a dark figure on the right side of the road crouched in the gravel on the shoulder. I eased off the gas, thinking that it was likely a deer or a dog from one of the farms nearby, and I didn't want to hit it. As I approached the figure, I was going about 55 miles an hour, and the figure stayed crouched. But as I neared it, I still couldn't tell what it was. It wasn't a deer, but it didn't look like anything else I expected to see where I was. Then, just as I passed the figure, it stood up and seemed to turn towards me. It was humanoid. I didn't see any features. It was a black mass. As my car passed where it was standing, it didn't move, and it seemed to be further away from the road than I thought, but as I had approached, I was sure that it was standing on the gravel and not in the tall grass at the edge of the ditch. The way it stood and turned made me think it was someone waiting for a ride. When they see their ride approaching, they stand and get ready to be picked up, but once I was passed, I let off the gas completely and looked in my rear vision mirror. But it was so dark that I wasn't able to see anything, and being a young woman alone in a car on a deserted road, I wasn't able to go back to investigate. Maybe it was just someone standing waiting for a ride, and the darkness kept me from seeing it as a person. But that isn't what it felt like. The rest of my drive home was uneventful, and I was grateful to get back into civilization and streetlights. I didn't see any more shadow figures that night, and I haven't seen any more shadow figures outside, though I've seen some smaller shadow figures in my house as what is now normal. I really don't know what to make of this recent experience. As I said, all of this began after listening to that particular podcast, and as I've listened more frequently lately... I've seemed to have more experiences with these shadow figures. Any light that you can shed on these shadows, pun completely intended, would be welcome. Thanks, Nicole. Well, Nicole, it's funny because as I said before, when you start looking at these topics, I look back to you, but it is something that a lot of people experience. And I don't know if that's part of the human condition, Elliot, that we do have an interest in things of the unknown, this unnatural phenomena that occurs around us. Well, it could be natural, but this weird phenomena that happens around us. But at the same point, I myself even notice that when you start investigating these topics, listening to stuff. Is it your mind playing tricks on you and you're going a little bit, you're not going crazy, Mm. but you're kind of getting yourself worked up? Or is it now that you're looking at these topics, these entities know about it and start coming towards you? Well, with the Dibber Box specifically, for example, I mean, there's a lot of hysteria behind it as well. And there's that expectation that when you hear about the Dibber Box, because that's the story behind it, you, something's going to happen. Mm. So that, that's pretty much the folklore behind it. If you hear about it, something bad will happen. So people kind of expect that or at least have that in their mind, right? So when something does happen, whatever it is, so like an iPhone turning off or a computer crashing or a hard drive dying, they think, I just heard that thing about the Dibber Box. It said something would happen and it did. Yeah, right. I see. It's, it's yeah. called confirmation bias, basically. So you're looking for it and therefore it happens and you attribute it to the other thing. It's confusing causation with correlation, right? right? 
But with this thing that's happening to Nicole, it seems like it's something completely different because yeah. this is something that she was already seeing apparently or yeah yeah and then then she heard the dibbit bucket episodes and and they kind of got worse well it definitely sounds like she's genuinely freaked out by what's going on and yeah it might have been someone in the dark but then again we have done stories before of black figures appearing by roadsides yeah. by jumping up by humanoids it's very odd things that go on out there that we cannot explain but there's also the other stuff of that she's seeing these tiny little creatures in her vision yeah and that's pretty creepy as well but that sort of contributes to the fact of the thing that she saw on the side of the road it's like what what are they why is she seeing this stuff and then seeing this thing more plainly in a in the center of her vision right there on the road yeah that's the freaky thing it's funny because it really does make me think that there is this entire paranormal world or other spectral world out there that we cannot see Mm. but for some reason some of us you know a small percentage of the population has a terrifying yet often fleeting experience with it. Mm, or like a window into that, that yeah, dimension. Yeah, that's the best way to describe it. Yeah. So that's possibly what's going on. I wouldn't, honestly, Nicole, I wouldn't be too concerned. I mean, normally also with shadow person encounters, I'd be more concerned about going to sleep at night. I know this isn't helping, but <laughs> <laughs> you go down the path of shadow person encounters and then you're waking up because you can't breathe and you're being suffocated. That's when the shadow person encounters get worse. If it does get worse, email that in, but otherwise you should be fine. Debit box. So that brings us to an end of this episode of Mysterious Universe, but there's plenty more coming up for Plus members. If you want to get onto Mysterious Universe Plus, just head over to mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus. It gets you an extension to your regular weekly show. It also gets you a full exclusive episode every week. On top of that, there's also, what have we got, Elliot? We've got high quality feeds, extra articles. We don't need to do the spiel. Head over to mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus. If you want to send in your experiences, feedback at mysteriousuniverse.org. Or if you want to call us, it's 530-918-4070. It's an American number, so if you're outside of the US, just put a plus one in front of that. Get in contact with us. It'd be great to hear your experiences and comments. You can also find links to all the articles we've discussed in today's show and the music we've played at mysteriousuniverse.org. Just click on the link for episode 923. If you're plus, stick around. Plenty more for you coming up after the break. For everyone else, we'll see you next week. Welcome back to your Plus Extension. Now, Aaron, what do you think human faces will look like in 100,000 years? Well, I have two theories on this. One is that we won't be here, so we're not going to look like anything because right. we won't make it that's that a good, far. That's a good uh, outlook, yep. Or I would imagine, because only because I've seen other reports a long time ago, that our faces will become quite uh, Asiatic, elongated. Mm, maybe like a melding of different races together, mm. some sort of... M- mongrel type thing going well, I was going to say mongrel but <laughs> so there's an article over at medicaldaily.com artist Nicolay Lamb and computational geneticist Alan Kwan teamed up to imagine what humans will look like in 100,000 years in the future with a series of images of altered faces of a man and a woman from the present Lamb and Kwan suggest a possible timeline in which a combination of genetic engineering adaptation to life on other planets and wearable technology have led human faces to look like those of anime characters. I don't want to end up looking like Sailor Moon. This is ridiculous. (laughs) With elongated foreheads and cartoonishly large gleaming eyes. So the eyes are going to be all gleaming and kawaii des. Yeah, definitely. Kwan told (laughs) Forbes that the images, which he stressed are purely speculative, are based partially on existing physiological trends in human evolution. For example, previous research has suggested that the human forehead has been gradually expanding since the 16th century, and Kwan imagined that this will keep widening to accommodate a growing brain. In 60,000 years, he suggested that genetic engineering could advance far enough to allow humans to determine the direction of their own evolution, surpassing the glacially slow progress of natural selection. 
Physical appearance will be pushed towards desirable facial traits like perfect symmetry and intense eyes, as well as those that might be adaptive in different surroundings. It kind of makes sense to me because Ben and I have been talking about this before. And in fact, in Korea, there's a surgical, cosmetic surgical procedure that's right. performed where um, some people of Korean descent actually have a fold put into their eye to make them look, or into their eyelids, to make them look more Caucasian. Because that's right, a popular yep, yep. thing. And symmetry, obviously, is a big thing as well. As, as well as like skin whitening as well. There's like creams to whiten your skin, which a lot of Asian cultures seem to take part in. Really? Like in Singaporean culture as well, they, they whiten their skin as well as Korean and Japanese. It's true. They do this. Well, they all want to look like Gwyneth Paltrow. I don't know like, what they, why up. they do this. I, I think it's silly, but they seem to like it. So it's interesting that we bring up artificial and natural selection because this is already happening, right? Because we're already artificially selecting the traits that we think are desirable. If you think about it, when you find a partner that you like, you try and go out with them and have a relationship with them. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, so we're always looking for the traits that we find desirable anyway. That's called natural selection. But is it artificial now that we are cognizant of it? So that's an interesting thing to think about. We, we, you know, we're always looking for symmetry in the face, you know, a certain type of nose, blue eyes, blonde hair like me, um, which uh, is awesome. I Everyone don't know should. what you're seeing in the mirror, Elliot, but... <laughs> Just the most ideal man imaginable. Right, right. Yeah, conceited, obviously, is something yeah. else. Apparently, I, I think I'm the ideal man. F- what do I want? Men or something, I guess? It <laughs> <laughs> came out really Moving bad. on from this awkward conversation. <laughs> yeah, but what I'm saying is that there is already artificial selection happening. We're doing it ourselves. So this isn't completely out of left field. This is something that probably could happen. But what this is also saying is that there's all these other factors as well as genetic engineering and technology that could push us down this path as as well as being on different planets as well. Maybe we'll be on different planets that have less sunlight. Well, you have different selection pressures then. Things will change then. And exactly. we'll get into some yeah. of the opponents of these series a little bit later on. But he says that eyes may enlarge dramatically to enhance human vision in dimmer environments, just like bush babies and other nocturnal animals do, in order to adapt to planets and space colonies further away from the sun than Earth. A sideways blinking third eyelid, like those in cats and other non-primate animals, <laughs> might be introduced to protect bulbous eyes. Eyelids might thicken. The prominent bone above the eye sockets might become more pronounced in order to counteract the effects of low gravity in outer space. People might evolve to have skin with stronger pigmentation to combat damage from UV radiation. That is, if most humans aren't already darker-skinned because of many generations of interracial reproduction. Right, yeah. The, this also reminded me of... Just from the wording, basically like the bigger eyes, the bigger foreheads, what, what do you think I'm thinking of here? Uh, gray aliens. Oh, of yeah, course. gray aliens. It's this could be some sort of alternate future for us. Maybe gray aliens, right, are some sort of race of humans from the future, hundred thousand years down the line, mm. who are, or probably probably more than that who are coming back in time to monitor us and see that. Maybe they've developed time travel. Now they can come back and see us. Oh, you've been listening to Mysterious Universe, obviously. Way too much. Um, <laughs> that is a theory. That is, yeah, that is a theory that's put forward quite consistently that yeah. perhaps greys are not extraterrestrial at all. They are us from so distant in the future that we have lost. We've made a mistake with our genetic capabilities and we can no longer reproduce. So we come back to a time before we reach that point to be able to replicate, to collect biological samples. And obviously, because we see ourselves in the past as being inferior, that's why these horrible medical experiments are conducted when people get abducted. Just a theory. Yeah, so these images that you'll see on this article, they do look like anime characters, but I think it's something much darker. We're all going to be grey aliens in the future. I'm kind of looking forward to it, to be honest. 
I'm not. I don't want to get that Let's far. keep it androgynous. Let's keep it everyone the same. Blue jumpsuits, though. Everyone will get a blue jumpsuit. I do like jumpsuits. That's how it works. Yep. They also say that wearable technology will become ubiquitous and much more discreet than Google Glass, for example. Communication lenses, contact lenses with visual computer interfaces will work within nanochips implanted above the ear to keep humanity perpetually wired without altering their appearance, since visible technology implants by then will have fallen out of style. I don't think, though, Elliot, that that's 100,000 years away. That's oh, no. 10 years away. Yeah, that's that's really close. And also genetic manipulation of our genome is way closer than 100,000 years away. It's already happening. And as I said, it's been happening for thousands of years anyway because we're selecting for traits that we like anyway. Well, that- so it's not completely unnatural or anything, but the scientific aspect of actually going in and tampering with the genome is something that will happen in the next hundred years. Well, you're absolutely right, Elliot, because a number of scientists have weighed in on this. Matthew Herper of Forbes called the images an interesting conceptual experiment, but suggested that spectators should think more expansively about the possibility of genetic engineering and avoid assuming that human tastes don't change. Mm. He said the ability to really muck around with the human genome is only decades, not millennia away. We can assume with confidence that in the short term we will be utilising medical technology like this to eliminate genetic diseases and then possibly move on to changing physical traits like height, eye size and other things that are like that. Well, this is funny because there's people already working on this aspect. There's guys in America who have these labs where people can come to to basically figure out what kind of child they're going to have and they get the embryo tested and they can tell if it's got a disease such as Mm. Down syndrome or something like that. Cystic fibrosis is a big one as well. Yeah, but what they're actually working on is for the next sort of stage of it is to be like, well, we want a child who has an amazing voice and can sing really nicely. Mm. And they're actually not that far away from figuring that out, maybe 50 years or something. So this is what's referred to as the coming biological divide. And essentially it comes to a point of biological haves and have nots. And Mm -hmm. if you can afford that technology, because obviously it's expensive, you can essentially choose a child to be the way you want it to be. You can make sure that you have all the genetic traits, which are the top or the peak that's possible. Yep. So a really great film that covers this amazingly is Gattaca. Yes. If you haven't seen this movie, mm. this is exactly what we're talking Love about. Love that film. Yeah, it's a great film. We actually, I actually studied that in year 12. Oh, dear God. Yeah. So you must hate it, right? I love it. I think oh. it's a brilliant film. It's well worth studying. I watched, I've watched it like maybe 20 times. I did, I did The Great Gatsby, and oh. since that new film has come out, I wanted to drown myself. Oh. <laughs> but yeah, so this is a really interesting topic and definitely something that could happen to us in the future and the very near future as well. You know, I had to point out, though, that evolutionary biologists have also stepped in. One is from Princeton University, and he's pointed out that while the brains of our human ancestors expanded in size for more than two million years, anthropological evidence now shows that the average brain volume of the modern human has actually been shrinking (laughs) for the past 20,000 years. And the interesting thing about that, one of the reasons for that is education, but it's also recently technology. Exactly. So if Quan is pointing out here that we're going to start taking on more of this technology, well, I would think that the brain would actually shrink because computers will start taking over a lot of the roles of what our brain has to do for us. Right. And our brain shrinking isn't necessarily a bad thing, okay? I don't know. Have you seen how people drive in Sydney? Oh, man. Awful. But it's not how big the brain is. It's how you use it and what you use it for. And also, you know, we we have things like... Google, which helps us. It's like an extended brain. It is an extended brain. And our phones that are attached to our hips, and they will be attached to our eyes soon with Google glasses. So 
it's like this expansion of our knowledge and we don't actually need to store information as much as we used to yeah. like superfluous information about the how the moon goes around the earth and yeah. like the the solstice and stuff because we can look it up but that's the thing i was reading an article just the other day that covered that topic and said general knowledge amongst generation z which is the generation just below us so yes, i think it's yes. people born from 1995 something up very young, very recent. Youngins. Youngins. The young, these youngins, they're growing up too far. <laughs> but they're losing general knowledge. Exactly. General knowledge is disappearing because you don't have to recall those facts. Even things like times tables, and all, it's all disappearing mm. because you can simply look it up. You don't even have to go to a computer terminal. It's on your phone. Yeah. And as we start developing more wearable technology, you know, with there's rumors of the iWatch coming, I mean, who knows if that will actually happen, but that type of technology will come to the forefront very soon, especially as we approach the technological singularity. And there are a lot of opponents to this singularity. In fact, Graham Hancock is one. He thinks that transhumanism is, is a terrible idea, and you can see why, mm. because it's almost the abandonment of the human body and our soul. And nature as well. It's mm. moving away completely from nature to the point where we'll have no symbiosis with plants or animal life. It'll just kind of be like uh, seen as a, a way to get nutrients and that's it. Well, what about electric drugs? See, we're not getting drugs from plants. We might be able to somehow utilize technology to allow us to get some type of electrical hit. And that's coming up in this next article. We got mm. this from io9. It's by George Dvorsky. And it's seven totally unexpected outcomes that could follow the technological singularity. And he says, by definition, the singularity is a blind spot in our predictive thinking. Futurists have a hard time imagining what life will be like after we create greater than human artificial intelligences. Here are seven outcomes of the singularity that nobody thinks about and could leave us completely blindsided. Now, the first one is AI wireheads. And he said it's generally assumed that self-improving artificial intelligence, known as SAI, will strive to become progressively smarter. But what if cognitive enhancement is not the goal? What if AI just wants to have fun? Like Cindy Lauper. <laughs> An AI might conclude, for example, that optimizing its capacity to experience pleasure is the most purposeful and worthwhile thing that it could do. Yeah, basically saving us from any dangers out there. So maybe if there is a giant overruling AI, he might just go, all of you are now going to be put into a population as wireheads where you're just jacking into the system all day, getting your your orgasm on or whatever the hell it's going to be. Yeah, it's yeah. found a way to modify the brain so that it can hit those pleasure centers with electrical signals, because that's essentially what drugs do. Drugs mm. just facilitate the transfer of electrical signals between synapses in the brain. So you could do this technologically. And if for some reason, for some utilitarian reason, which means the greatest good for the greatest number of people, AI decides, well, that's what we need for humanity. That's where we could end up, and we could essentially become part of a matrix or just sitting in a machine all day where we're getting constant pleasure. Now, you think, oh, well, that, that's fantastic. I would love that. But, <laughs> Maybe you would. But, I don't know. Well, I like in freedom. the long run, I don't think that's a good thing at all because no, it's not yeah. real. Yeah, definitely. And the next one is called So Long and Thanks for All the Virtual Fish. Imagine this scenario. The technological singularity happens, and the emerging SAI simply packs up and leaves. I love that. I feel like it would happen. The singularity will happen at a certain point, and this everything will just take off. We're like, where's my phone? Yeah, where did you, it go? It's this could, off this could actually happen. It's like the AI will become so advanced, or at that point where it's sort of gone pop into existence and it, it's self-aware, it'll go. Hold on a second. If I'm in on Earth with these humans, 
I'm not going to be around very long either. Yeah. So it'll just be like, I'm, I'm out of here, fellas. <laughs> well, it could conclude, essentially, that interacting with human civilization is not worth the trouble. And, you know, humans, we're not logical. We're irrational. We yeah. do stupid things. A computer, an entity that is as intelligent as AI or SAI, might simply go, I'm not dealing with this. I'm leaving. Yeah. Another one is the rise of the invisible singleton. And essentially, this is kind of like the idea of robots rising up and machines rising up and taking over. But this is from a subversive point Mm. of view. It means that AI will become so intelligent that it will know how to control humanity without actually showing that it's controlling humanity. It will be able to direct it to do certain things. And it's like the drugs from before. You can alter the electrical impulses of the brain to cause pleasure, but AI might get to a point where it will be able to alter the electrical impulses of the brain to cause you to do commit certain acts and do certain things, and you'll never know. It'll be like you're brainwashed, but you're brainwashed by this godlike AI computer, which is covertly extending its control over humanity. Yeah, and it's not necessarily brainwashing. Isn't necessarily something where all of a sudden you're in a trance. No, you, you basically you think you're doing the right thing. Yeah, by consuming any content ever anywhere, you are brainwashed basically because you're taking on information, whether it's true or not, mm. and you're taking it on board and acting in a certain way. So it's actually not that far-fetched for this to happen. It could be it could be happening to you right now, which is the scary part. <laughs> Don't say that not right not right now. As not literally, because we trust yeah. us. <laughs> the other one that's mentioned here is first contact, and George Javorsky writes that our transition to a post-singularity civilization could expose us to a larger technologically advanced intergalactic community. And he points out that there may be some kind of prime directive in effect, a galactic policy of non-interference in which primitive civilizations are left alone. But it's different. When you think of Star Trek and the Prime Directive, you think mm. about advanced technology like warp drive and that sort of thing. Once someone develops or a civilization develops warp drive, well, then you can communicate with them. But that might not be what is happening in reality. There might be this intergalactic society that are waiting for humanity to achieve and survive a technological singularity. Right, exactly. It's like they're looking for the perfect singularity. It's mm. because we might have programmed these AI or robots, whatever you want to call them, in a certain way where when the singularity hits at that point, it's actually a negative thing, right? But there could be some civilizations out there who have developed it in the correct way where the robots are programmed in a way that's positive and and helpful. Well, it's like a robot, right? You know, they're supposed to follow laws. Yeah, so it might be a case of they're worried that when we hit the singularity, these robots could sort of become these self-propagating things that will spread throughout the galaxy and kill everything because that's the right thing to do for humanity. Yeah, exactly. Right, so that's probably what they're scared of. So if that did happen, maybe they would just wipe us from existence. See, he raises a point here. He says this might be actually how berserker probes work. They sit idle in some location of the solar system, becoming active at the first sign of a pending singularity. And you know what this is? This is the Black Knight satellite. Exactly. You know how we covered the Black Knight satellite? There is this strange object which sits over the North Pole or somewhere up in that region. No one knows what it is. And it's in a polar orbit, isn't it, as well? It's in a polar orbit. It's some odd satellite. Um, Have a look for it through the show notes at Mysterious universe.org uh, just search for it you'll find it on the yeah. episode for that and it is this very very strange satellite and no one knows what it is we don't know where it's come from mm. i wonder if that could possibly be waiting for us to hit the singularity and then all hell will break loose all of a sudden a laser comes down like the death star <laughs> killing alderan well we won't we won't go there <laughs> but maybe you never know you never that might be an explanation for what's going on an even scarier concept though 
is that this is all a simulation. You're listening right now, you're going to work, you're going mm. home, you're talking to your family. It's all a simulation like the Matrix. We're living in this ancestor simulation, a simulation that's being run by post-humans for some particular reason. It could be for entertainment, it could be a science experiment. An ancestor simulation could also be running in tandem with many other simulations in order to create a large sample pool to allow for the introduction of different variables. Disturbingly, it is possible that the simulations were only designed to reach a certain point in history, and that point could very well be the singularity. And then the simulation ends, right? It's over. So if we reach that stage, everything could go dark. What's more, the computational demands required to run the post-singularity simulation of a civilization would be enormous. Because think about it. Basically, if you're running a simulation where anything can create intelligence from then, that's also got to be simulating that. And then those other simulations are simulating it further. My head's hurting. Exactly. So you've got this infinite simulation of something infinite, which is intelligence. It's crazy. And you would see how hardware, whatever it is, would have a problem with that. Well, that's exactly right. And the last one is that the AI could actually start to hack the universe itself. A sufficiently advanced enough SAI could start to see directly into the fabric of the cosmos and figure out how to hack its code, in inverted commas. It could start to mess around with the universe to further its needs, perhaps making subtle alterations to the laws of the universe itself, or even engineering an escape hatch in order to avoid the inevitable onslaught of entropy. And that is eventually, you know, scientists predict that the universe will collapse, heat death will occur, and the Mm. universe will just go cold. Well, this AI might actually find a way to get out. It might save us. It might create a wormhole, which we can all go through and survive. Or it might just go, you know what, screw humanity, I'm leaving. Yeah. The other idea is that, I mean, I don't really necessarily agree with this one because I think it's a little bit too far-fetched in that you can change the physics of the universe. I don't think you can. Because I think there are constant things. You think things. they're set? I, I do. I think they're set. I, it, well, I don't know. That's that's for someone way smarter than me to figure it out. Figure yeah, out. We're not going into physics. And now. it's it's actually you know at at the Big Bang, physics was very different. So I mean, there is. It's not completely constant. There was that moment at the Big Bang when it was different. Yeah. But I think it's more likely that an AI would be so smart that it would be able to predict the future and therefore change the universe in a time scale rather than affecting the universe itself at a fundamental level. It's actually affecting our future. And in that way, it will be basically controlling. It comes back to control. Yeah. Yeah, It comes back to control. So really the singularity, which I've been promoting and say, we really need to get there might not necessarily be a good idea at all. No, that's right. But I I think this one's the scariest one because if we do develop an AI that is that smart and we already kind of, can predict the future in some ways because we we do meteorology where we figure out what the weather's going to do and we can say there's a hurricane cu- that's going to come here. We know the path it's coming at. When has it ever been really that accurate, honestly? <laughs> well, that's, that's one thing, but if something's infinitely smarter than us mm. or can develop its own intelligence and create other AIs to do that for it, it's effectively got an unlimited intelligence. And if it's completely interlinked, then it can do whatever it wants. So it could basically predict the future because all it needs to do is have those mathematics within it to right. be able to compute that. So, right. so it's predicting the future from an educational or technological point of view as opposed to actually seeing what the future is. Yeah, it's not actually seeing exactly what will happen, but it could say, I predict that this guy will do this. And right. it's probably going to be pretty likely. One weird thing about the past is that it has a 100% chance of happening. Now, that sounds very strange, right? That sounds almost counterintuitive. But the thing that has happened had a 100% chance of happening. 
effectively, so if you look back on it. But that's saying fate. You mean you're saying that things happen for a reason, which I kind of agree with. Well, yeah, they, things do happen for a reason. Yeah. Like the direct reason before it happened. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but if you think of it as, so I sat down in this chair, that is a 100% chance of happening because it happened. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so it's already happened. So if you think of it that way, there is a definite way to predict the future. And, you know, scientists are already working on this. It's called the theory of everything. And it's some sort of fundamental physics theory that no way could I understand it or probably any anyone in the local vicinity could un- understand it. But it's something that could definitely happen if an AI with intelligence is formed. We're screwed. You heard it here on Mysterious Universe Plus. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we've got plenty more. Don't go away. So in that quick break, you and I were just discussing what you mentioned there at the end. And yeah. it, it really is an intriguing concept, that mm. theory of everything. But you're saying essentially, if we use that theory, that you listening to Mysterious Universe right now, that was 100% guaranteed to happen. Yeah, but it's it's really counterintuitive and it's kind of hard to explain because I don't fully understand it myself because I'm not a physicist who's had, you know, 15 years of university training to understand it. Yeah, I'm not doing that either. And anyone who says they do understand it is probably lying. But, <laughs> but it is something that is seriously considered by scientists. That has a big problem, though. Just imagine the legal ramifications, because that would mean yeah. that essentially we have no free will. Whatever mm. was going to happen was going to happen. It was 100% guaranteed to, to occur. So that way, well, it means, well, I'm sorry, but I had to shoot that person because that's what was going to happen. Yeah. And this hypothesis is really hard to escape once you start thinking about it, because the more you think about it, the less chance you have of getting out of it, really. Because if you think about it, everything is happening because of what is around it and the biological factors in your body and someone else's body, etc. That can never really be controlled. No, that's, that's the exactly scary thing. Right. It's it's always it's always going to be that way. So maybe the future is completely predictable. Maybe there is some way for you to completely predict what is going to happen. If you know exactly how everything works, you can predict the future. So you're saying if I can get some SAI, I'll be able to predict the stock market. You could predict whatever you wanted, apparently. Right. I will keep yep. that in mind. I picked up this interesting article over at Paranormalia this week. It's almost a book review on the departed among the living. It was a study carried out by a veteran Icelandic psychic researcher, and he was looking at the statistics of Icelandic people and their belief in the paranormal. And he says the country only has a population of about 300,000, and yet a very high percentage, almost 31%, have indicated that they've had some type of paranormal activity, which is unusual. That doesn't seem to be the case for the rest of the the world. So what is it about this culture? But he highlights, I'm going to pick up this book, but he highlights a section of the book, which I just wanted to mention. It concerns a, a crewman who was working on a vessel who had gone to bed with incredibly bad back pain. Now he said, I must have been sleeping, although I felt quite awake and I saw everything that happened. They entered my cabin. They were white dressed doctors who said they'd been requested to examine me. I told them that no such request had been made. I remember this as I wrote it down immediately after I realized what was going on. They turned me over and examined my back where the pain was. They said, we are going to operate on you. He says, while I've had this problem before, no one has ever said that it needs to be operated upon. They said it firmly and said that it didn't matter. I told them that I had a shift at four o'clock in the morning and it was impossible for me to be bedridden for any longer time. They said I would not be bedridden. They said I could work the next day, but they said I should be careful not to lift heavy objects. I would be fine after this operation. As they said this, I saw and felt their hands on my back, but I felt no pain. They said the operation was over and they wished me well. I then saw them disappear throughout the door. 
I jumped out of bed, opened the door, but only saw darkness outside. I shouted, where are the men? But then I heard the men on duty call back. There have been no men there. You must have been dreaming. He said, I insisted that there were two men dressed in white. They were doctors. I had seen them clearly and I was fully awake. Nobody believed me. He said, as I jumped out of bed, I suddenly realized that even though I could hardly move before, I felt no pain, no discomfort, and I was completely healthy. He says, I've never had a problem with my back since, and this happened 15 years ago. Do you reckon everyone in Iceland knows Bjork? There's only 300,000 of them. Man, seriously. That's a possibility. I hadn't thought of that. But that's not the point of the story, Elliot. I think it is. I think it is the point of the story. All I could think about them was like, I wonder if they all know Bjork. Great. I just went all through that. All you're thinking about is Bjork. But isn't that intriguing? It sounds like some type of, I guess, psychic surgery. I mean, psychic surgery has quite a negative connotation to it. Yeah, it does. But was it perhaps that these people were extraterrestrials and they had a purpose to look after him? Mm, Well, I mean, you always hear about extraterrestrials having an amazing quality of medical care. Well, they would know. (laughs) After they've performed so many horrific medical experimentations, you would would. assume that they would have that technology. Mm. So I'll link to that in the show notes at mysteriousuniverse.org. I just wanted to mention, I thought it was intriguing. I will also see if I can order that book and we'll do some further investigations into that in the future. Not into Bjork. No, we'll figure out if they all know Bjork. Okay, that could be something you can work at Elliot. We'll, I think it's we'll really put important. put you to work on that. Now, before we end the show, I wanted to go back to the survivalist boards. I have saved this for the Plus Extension. This absolutely creeped me out. And to be honest with you, Elliot, it's very rare that I get creeped out by anything. But this was published by Loose Cannon, and they say, where I grew up as a child behind our house was the end of town. It was nothing but open valley floor and sparse patches of forest. I was always a very explorative child, a trait that I got from my father, and constantly found myself spending my summers exploring all the land behind our house had to offer. Two particular places come to mind when I started reading this thread. There was an open field about two miles from my parents' house that had three very large oak trees that formed a peculiar triangle. I'd been there many times before, and with each visit, there was this odd odour that hung in the air. I would only notice it inside the large triangle of the trees. On one of the last times I ever made my way to those trees... I stumbled upon a pile of dead ducks. There must have been at least 50 or 60 dead ducks in the, middle, ducks. I know, in the middle of the trees. I didn't know where they came from or who put them there. There weren't any lakes close by and no roads led to the site. He says it wasn't until my late teens that I saw a similar pile of dead ducks out in the canals that border my hometown. He said it was rumoured that there was a cult performing killings and piling up the ducks. That's That's pretty weird. That's a lot of dead ducks. I mean, if you're seeing so many piles of dead ducks, there's something wrong with you. Like, well, not, not the people putting the ducks there. Why are you seeing so many dead ducks? Well, I mean, it sounds like he's having a genuine experience, but I wouldn't yeah, even think no, that a, a local true. cult, like, I don't yeah. even think a cult would go to the effort of killing 50 to 60 ducks. I understand maybe mm. even 10. M- maybe some sort of duck-based cult. It's my sort <laughs> of cult. I like a, that. No, well, you don't want to kill ducks? God. <laughs> no, I like ducks. Anyway, you're, you're ruining the experience. I'm sorry. That's what I do. <laughs> he says, my second experience took place a mile or so away from the oak trees. It was an abandoned farm that I'd only visited one time. On the property was a white two-bedroom farmhouse with a wraparound porch, dinner bell, red trims and a lot of windows. Adjacent to the house was a very dilapidated barn. As I entered the house, what appeared to be a hunter came walking around the corner from the kitchen, rifle in hand. He was over six feet tall, had short brown hair, a moustache and a beard, and was dressed in a plaid long-sleeved shirt, jeans and boots. He was very nice and introduced himself as Jim and said that he was hunting rabbits in the area. He began to tell me about the house, the barn, and the family that lived there. He said the family had just up and abandoned their farm one day and were never seen again. They left all their belongings and took nothing with them. This was clearly evident in the house. 
We walked out to the barn where he showed me an old black and white photo of the farm and the family. I couldn't believe everything was just left behind. Well, we said our farewells and he invited me and my parents to join him and his wife for dinner sometime. He said you could see his house from behind the barn and it was just a couple of miles away. He says, as I was walking away from the barn, I got this terrible nagging feeling. Something in my head was telling me to go back to that house and look around some more. I went back, snooped around a bit, and I realised that Jim was gone. I looked all over the place, outside and in the barn. I walked behind the barn to see if I could see Jim walking back home, but there was nothing. Nobody was around. I looked in the direction that Jim told me that he had lived, and there was nothing there. A couple of days later, I braved up enough to go and look for Jim's house. I found it all right, or at least where the house once stood. All that was left was the burnt-out foundation. There was nothing else around in the area, just plain fields and low grass. And a pile of dead ducks. Not a pile of dead ducks. It's creepy though, right? Apart yeah, from the very dead creepy. Duck. But I mean, yep. it's interesting that you have this location which already has weird stuff going on, like the dead ducks, mm. and then you have an abandoned farmhouse which already has creepy written all over it. Yeah. And then yet you walk in, you meet a guy, and yet the place is burnt down. Now, later on, it says that he told his father about these experiences, and it turns out that, in fact, Jim had been caught in that house fire when the house had burnt down. Mm. So was his spirit coming around wanting him to stay away from a bad place or... Who knows? Very strange indeed, Aaron. But you said that nothing would creep you out. I think I have something that will creep you out. Is it Japanese? Welcome to the digital age of virtual human cloning, in which stunningly accurate replicas of faces are created using 3D sculpting technology. This ingeniously creative idea, made popular by Akibara-based Clone Factory in Japan, uses several DSLR cameras to take photos of the human face from different angles. Danny Chu, a blogger that started Culture Japan, saw for himself how they are made. Using a computer program, the pictures are combined into 3D data, which is then fed into a specialised printer that uses plaster and ink to mould the finished replica. The results are miniaturised yet perfectly similar plastic mould of his face, capturing even the smallest details and angles. But wait for it, the <laughs> price for each of these ranges about $1,300. I think we should invest in these for MU, get one for each of us. Well, you know, we'll, we'll get like quite a few printed. We need to sell them, of course. This is creepy. I don't want people having my Japanese doppelganger around. This guy's got himself as a stormtrooper. It's amazing. And these girls are like fully weird... Creepy dolls. Oh, my God. It's dis- it's so disturbing. They clone animals. This is what 3D... It's, oh, I would think that 3D printing is supposed to be advancing humanity. We're using it to create organs, and we're using it to create well, spatial structures. Well, arguably, this is advancing humanity in some way. No, it's not. It's fashion. creating doll. And See, it's like that, that real-life Japanese doll. I think... I can't remember his name, but that's what that really creeps me out, that receptionist. <laughs> and it's just, like, really creepy. It's yeah. like dolls are creepy enough. When you add robotics to them or have a doppelganger, mm. bad, bad news. But the faces are really really high detail, aren't they? They are, but that's not the point. I mean, why would technology get to a point where people can create their own (laughs) dolls? I I still stand by the fact that we should uh, have these for MU and sell them. Scariest thing we have ever covered on Mysterious Universe, Mm -hmm. and that brings us to an end of this episode. Thank you so much for being on Plus. Ben returns next week from his holiday. God knows where he's been. Yeah, I get a break from that. (laughs) From this. No, we're putting you back in your cage now. That's what's happening. I don't like my cage. (laughs) You can find links to everything that we've mentioned in the show at mysteriousuniverse.org. Thanks for being on Plus, and we'll catch you next week.